Welcome to the latest edition of Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter at Montgomery Community Media. And with us today is Representative Jamie Raskin. He's serving a second term representing the 8th District in Congress. He serves on the Judiciary Committee, um, which as a lawyer and a constitutional scholar, that seems appropriate. Before Congress, he was a 10-year member of the Maryland Senate representing the 20th District, which is centered on uh, Tacoma Park and Silver Spring. He championed a number of causes, including same-sex marriage, which I'm bringing up uh, solely to be able to say that he once told a Republican senator that she took the oath of office. She put her hand on the Bible to defend the Constitution, not her hand on the Constitution to defend the Bible. It's a great line. Even with so little time in Washington, it's not unusual to see Mr. Raskin on TV news networks as a spokesperson for any number of progressive causes. Welcome, Mr. Raskin. I'm delighted to be here, Doug. It's been too long. So there are a dozen or more issues to cover today, but the one that is uh, part of the current news cycle still is um, President Trump's attack on Baltimore and Elijah Cummings specifically, which uh, apparently started Saturday afternoon, but it's continuing on into this morning. To summarize, Trump blasted Cummings' uh, use of the Oversight Committee, turning that into a question into money spent in Baltimore. In one of his tweets, he said, no human being would want to live there. But you responded, Donald Trump hits new low with his slashing attack on Representative Cummings and the people of Baltimore. Cummings is devoted to the common good. Trump to self-enrichment and glorification. No human would want to live there is a better description of his deranged mind. So I want to ask, um, are we becoming a government that attacks each other via tweets? Or is, there, is this just the, where, the, where the game is played nowadays? Well, I try to put this in the international context, Doug, because all over the world, democracy is under attack by authoritarianism, by despots and tyrants and strongmen. And so you see it with Putin in Russia and Orban in Hungary and Duterte in the Philippines and Sisi in Egypt and Erdogan in Turkey and Donald Trump in America. And one of the critical tactics that they use is to scapegoat and demonize people from the other party. They also attack the press. Trump, of course, has called the press here the enemy of the people. They try to um, disassemble government. Trump has shut our government down, fire employees, demoralize and break the federal employees, unions, and uh, run over the courts, demonize and vilify judges, and so on. And so this is all part of that pattern of what Trump and his presidency are trying to do to the country. They've converted the presidency into a money-making operation for one guy and his family and his friends, and then are trying to turn our democratic institutions into authoritarian institutions or to crush them. So what's the average guy supposed to be thinking about all this? Should we, is this just this, taking place in this rarefied air of high-level politicians that doesn't, doesn't really affect them? Or No, I think it affects everybody's life in a really critical way. You know, I've got farmers in my district who tell me that it's outrageous that the president has plunged us into trade wars that have cost farmers in our country billions of dollars. In Congress, the Democrats were fighting for working people across America. We just voted to increase the minimum wage to $15 over the next several years. Um, it's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk with a lot of other legislation we've sent him. For example, we want to give the government the power to negotiate with the big pharmaceutical companies for lower prescription drug prices. The Republicans oppose that and haven't done anything about it. Even Donald Trump had talked about that. Of course, he said at one point he was for a single-payer plan 
to. Now he's opposed to that. But we have to try to stand strong for the things that we've built in America. That's why I say if I were running for president today, I would describe our party as the conservative party. The Democrats want to conserve the land, the air, the water, the climate system, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, the Affordable Care Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, the right to organize, collective bargaining. Everything that they want to destroy is what we want to conserve. And I think that's really what this election coming up is about. Are we going to be able to conserve everything that we hold dear in America because it's all under attack right now? One of the tactics... Um, that the Democrats have talked about, but it's all talk, at least, is impeachment. However, you told Roll Call, which was published on Friday, that you're pretty much in impeachment mode now with the investigations. Could you elaborate? I think we are. Special Counsel Mueller, who's a lifelong Republican and decorated war hero, despite all of the propaganda we've been getting from Trump supporters, delivered us a 448-page report, which detailed 10 different episodes of presidential obstruction of justice, witness tampering, lying, concealing evidence, and so on. He also detailed what he called a sweeping and systematic campaign by Vladimir Putin and the Russians to destabilize our 2016 election in order to get Donald Trump elected. And instead of calling the FBI or the Federal Election Commission or the police, Donald Trump and his campaign said they love it and threw the doors and windows open and welcomed it all. Now, Mueller found that there wasn't enough evidence to show that there was a conspiracy. And I never thought there was a conspiracy because Putin didn't need Eric Trump and Donald Trump Jr. to execute his plan of hacking into the DNC and the DCCC and Hillary Clinton's office and trying to get into all 50 state election systems. He was doing that on his own. He just used the Trumps and they just laid down and let the Russians roll all over them. So we've seen super abundant evidence of high crimes and misdemeanors, and I think we are in an impeachment investigation, like it or not. Doesn't mean we necessarily have to go to articles of impeachment, and it doesn't mean you have to support it. You can either say that Mueller was wrong, and all of those facts really aren't in there, or you can do what my GOP colleagues tried to do shamefully at the Mueller hearing, which is just change the subject and uh, introduce their fantasy uh, deep state conspiracy theory about how all of this was made up by Peter Strzok and Lisa Page or something like that. But it's been refuted and contradicted by the Department of Justice Inspector General. Everybody knows it's ridiculous, but they simply have no way to contradict what's actually in the Mueller report. Can you enumerate all the investigations that are taking place right now? Or at least some of them? Which ones do you mean? You mean by different committees in Congress? Right, Well, uh, I can tell you the ones I've been involved in. Let's start with those. Um, We learned that in the White House personnel office, which has a professional staff, there were 25 people who Trump sent to them to get security clearances. And those 25 people were all denied security clearances by the professional staff which means that either they were compromised by virtue of their entanglement with the foreign government, like Michael Flynn, who was acting as a lobbyist for a foreign government, or they had been having secret meetings with foreign agents that they didn't report, or they had a financial conflict of interest, or they had a drug and alcohol problem. Okay. And therefore, they were refused a security clearance in all 25 of those cases. Donald Trump, either personally or through a political subordinate, overruled the professional staff 
we've been trying to get information about why were these people denied a security clearance. One of them is almost certainly Jared Kushner. And then why were the rulings of the professional staff overruled by Donald Trump and his political team? Congress is the lawmaking branch of government. We represent the people. We're in Article One. It goes right from we the people in order to form a more perfect union, establish this constitution, to all legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States. And then you get pages and pages of all the powers of Congress. And then you, and only after that do you get to Article Two, where the job of the president is to be the commander in chief in times of actual insurrection or conflict, and then to take care that our laws are faithfully executed, not thwarted, not circumvented. And then it's the impeachment clause saying that if the president commits high crimes and misdemeanors, he can be removed. He can't remove us, but we can remove him. So the founders of the Constitution clearly wanted to vest the primary power in Congress. And the Supreme Court has always said that we have the power to get the information that we want in order to do our job as the lawmakers. Well, this president said to his administration, don't give the Democrats in Congress anything, despite the fact that Republicans, when they controlled Congress, got literally millions of documents in the Benghazi investigation, the Fast and Furious investigation, Hillary Clinton email investigation, and so on. When we're in power, they said, Congress doesn't have this power. The president is immune executive immunity. They invented a completely new, totally phony doctrine, and he's ordered his administration not to comply. Well, it's completely unacceptable. It's indefensible. And so that is contempt of Congress, categorical. And we've got lots of investigations like that that are going on. We've got investigations into what's been going on at the border, where seven children in the custody and care of the United States of America, our government, our people have died. A child had not died for a decade before that in American custody and care at the border. Seven kids have died down there. And there are absolutely dreadful conditions that have taken place. Basically, strategically, the administration said openly, if you don't want to get your children taken away from you, if you don't want to be in these horrible, overcrowded conditions, don't come here. So we have 150 people in a cell that was built for 30 people. We have rampant lice, chicken pox, filth, influenza, sexual harassment, sexual assault. All of these things have been documented at the border. And still, the administration does whatever it can to stonewall us and to prevent us from getting information about it. Let me give you one more example, Doug. I mean, we could be here all day with these, but one of the, the founders' principal commitments was to see that all of us who serve in the federal government have one loyalty and one loyalty only to the American people complete undivided loyalty to the American people. One of the ways they inscribed that in the Constitution was Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8, the Foreign Emoluments Clause, which says that none of us can accept a present, an emolument, which means a payment, an office or a title from a prince, a king, or a foreign state of any kind whatever without the consent of Congress. So we have records of presidents who got a horse's saddle from a foreign dignitary and brought it to Congress, uh, cufflinks, and they said, can I keep it or can I not? I mean, the presidents have been scrupulous about it. Then we get to Donald Trump. Donald Trump says 
not only is he not going to divest himself of his business interests, not only is he not going to put everything into a blind trust, he's going to continue to do business, continue to be involved in the business, and continue to do business with foreign governments. This president has accepted millions of dollars from at least 24 different foreign governments, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Azerbaijan, Turkey, Egypt, the Philippines, you name it. All that money is flowing right into Donald Trump's pockets. And he gave the game away when he actually wrote a check to the U.S. Treasury for $350,000. And he said, these are the profits that I've made from foreign governments using my hotels for celebrations and parties and guest stays and so on. These are the profits, he said. Well, there's a couple problems with that. The first is that he only dealt with the hotels and didn't deal with the office tower or the golf courses or his other properties. The second problem is the Constitution doesn't say that the president can't keep the profits from foreign government business transactions. It says he can't keep anything, no payments at all. And three, he can't keep any of it without the consent of Congress. And he never came to Congress. So I've got a resolution to deal with that one that will require the president to turn over a complete accounting of all the business he's doing with foreign governments uh, and to turn over all of the money that he's received from foreign governments since taking office. But that gives you a taste of some of the investigations that are going on. Speaker Pelosi has said that she's not interested in an impeachment. I, how, well, how do these investigations? Uh, well, you got to quote that to me because that's not exactly my sense of what she said. What well, she said is there would have to be an overwhelming burden of proof shown, hmm. and that it would have to be bipartisan. Of course, one Republican read the report and came out very strongly for impeachment, Justin Amash, and then basically got expelled from the party where he decided to leave. He's now an independent. But I think what she said is there's a very high burden of proof, and on that point, I absolutely agree with her. Okay. And is that because it's better to, if you're going after the king, you want to, you don't want to wound him? I think it's because that's the constitutional design. Impeachment is an extraordinary remedy that is reserved for extraordinary cases. The Republicans impeach Bill Clinton, let's not forget, for telling one lie about a sexual act. That's what I call a low crime and misdemeanor. I don't think that rose to the level, but clearly the Republicans know how to impeach people and they understand that the impeachment provision is in the Constitution for a reason. You can't even begin to compare Bill Clinton's sin with the massive volumes of criminal deceit and sabotage and corruption that define the Trump administration. You announced legislation some time ago about building up a process towards using the 25th Amendment to, well, not to necessarily go after Donald Trump, but to at least build the infrastructure for if a president was incapacitated. Correct. What's the status of that legislation? Well, uh, we had, I think we had 75 or 80 co-sponsors in the last Congress. I have not reintroduced it yet, but it's uh, curious you mention it because I was thinking just today, Doug, that we need to dust this off and I think revive it now. Obviously, the focus has been on impeachment because of the president's evident high crimes and misdemeanors. But the 25th Amendment was added to the Constitution in the nuclear age in 1967. Uh, Senator Birch Bayh and Senator Robert F. Kennedy were the key champions of it, but it had uh, almost unanimous bipartisan support in both houses of Congress. And its purpose is to deal with presidential vacancies and disabilities. And what people don't know about Section 4, which is the operative provision here, is that either the vice president and a majority of the cabinet can find that the president is unable to successfully discharge the powers and duties of office, 
or the vice president in a majority of a body set up by the Congress. And when I got in, I called over to the Library of Congress because I couldn't find where is the body set up by Congress. And they called me back and they said it was never set up. All my legislation would do is to establish the body on a bicameral, bipartisan basis so that it's able to act in the event that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of office because either of a physical or a mental incapacity. So what if a majority of the cabinet disagrees with the body that gets set up by this this bill if it ever passes? Well, it's written in such a way that either a majority of the cabinet or a majority of the congressional body could determine that the president was incapacitated. But in either case, you need the participation of the vice president. So the vice president would also have to agree that the president is unable to successfully execute the powers of office. Okay. And there's some reason to believe Mike Pence would never do that. Well, as you kindly mentioned when you introduced the topic, uh, this is not about the Trump presidency alone. It's about every presidency. I would hope it's in place for every presidency. We've actually had Section 3 of the 25th Amendment activated numerous times. That's a temporary handoff of power to the vice president voluntarily by the president. And we've seen that during lots of cases involving the presidential colon When there are colonoscopies, a number of presidents have done it. Reagan handed off to Bush and Bush handed off to Quayle. And actually, when Reagan had colorectal surgery, uh, he did it for uh, a few days. But it's serious business in the nuclear age. And I think you've got to see the 25th Amendment in that context. The framers of the 25th Amendment did not want a situation where you had somebody who was essentially able to initiate a nuclear war being in that position if they were not in their right mind or if they were in a coma or if they had some kind of crippling disability. That's what it was all about. You introduced legislation recently with uh, Chris Van Hollen on gerrymandering and creating creating the rules of, of... how political districts are going to be uh, designed. Yes. Talk about that, please. Well, look, um, the American public is in a state of outrage, uh, which I share about the gerrymandering system in America. We have uh, a regime where politicians choose the voters before the voters choose the politicians. And with the advent of computer technology, it's grown ever more meticulous and precise. You can assign Doug Tallman to this district or that district, and it gets down to that level of personal specificity and detail. In H.R. 1, the very first bill that we introduced in the House when we, the new Congress took over, we essentially abolish partisan gerrymandering in federal elections. We say there should be an independent redistricting panel in every state in the union with no politicians allowed and allow an independent panel of citizens and whatever experts they want to draw on develop the congressional districts. And this is the way we'll get out of it. So uh, I'm a champion of that. We can have a a, a national way to get at it. All of the Democrats supported it. Unfortunately, none of the Republicans voted for it. And the Republicans have now been arguing that they want to keep uh, redistricting controlled at the state level, obviously, because they control a lot more state legislatures than we do. Here in Maryland, it's uh, one of the handful of states where the Democrats gerrymander back. But if you look at Ohio, Wisconsin, North Carolina, Virginia, the Republicans have essentially cemented themselves into power through gerrymandering the state legislatures and then gerrymander the federal elections out of it. And I would hope that both parties would get together and pass legislation at the national level to get out of this totally backward system. 
And yet you benefit from gerrymandering, at least in a broader sense. Um, not, Personally, it, I don't. I mean, if— Right. Yeah, you, but, yeah. One would assume that there's going to be a district centered on Montgomery County. There's so many Democrats here that, you know, whoever the Democrat was would probably be reelected. Yeah. But my, um, my district is less Democratic because of the gerrymandering right. that's gone on in our right. state. I, I just spent most of the day yesterday in Carroll County, right. which is, you know, an hour and a half away. I love my constituents there and up in Frederick County. But uh, in my particular case, my district well, but the first time I won with 59 percent of the vote in 2018, I won with 67 percent of the vote. So I was happy. We've done good constituent services. And I think our numbers have gone up in the more Republican areas, but uh, if you just centered it on Montgomery County, it would be in 80 percent right. Democratic district. Right. But just looking at the geography of the state, you could easily see a Republican moving into western Maryland. You could see a Republican—obviously, there's going to be a Republican from the eastern shore, possibly a Republican from southern Maryland, and the Baltimore suburbs, probably 50-50. So you could end up with a 4-4 tie in Maryland, at, which is what we had, I don't know, 20 years ago. Uh, wasn't unusual for um, the state to be represented half Republican, half Democrat. If that's what the people want, then that's what you know the people should have. But the, the, the point we need to see is that gerrymandering is kind of in the eye of the beholder. And that's why we need independent redistricting panels that use proportional representation forms of, rep, of representation. Right. That's why we need ranked choice voting. And I think we need multi-member districts. I mean, the irony is that the Trone district, which was the one targeted in the Supreme Court case, is the most competitive district in the whole state. And remember, Delaney won it by, I think, at one half of 1%, right? That was a district that was made more competitive when it was the object of redistricting. But that just shows the fact that when we say gerrymandering, it means different things to different people. For some people, it's all about aesthetics. It's what do the district lines look like? Right. How weird does it look? To other people, it means how competitive is the district? And then to other people like me, really the metric of gerrymandering is to what extent does the congressional delegation depart from the political numbers in the state? How much does it depart from the political will of the people? I think really that's what we should be looking for. If you get 40% of the vote, if your party gets 40% of the vote in the state, you shouldn't get 0% of the seats. But that's what happens to like the Republican Party True. in Massachusetts or the Democratic Party usually in Utah. So, but but th that goes beyond just weird looking district lines. We need to come up with electoral systems that allow minorities to get represented. Right. But more than the, the one area that you didn't mention is communities of interest where you're representing Sibyllisville. Uh, population of maybe 150, yes, um, and Friendship Heights, which are about as far uh, apart. I got a lot of good socially. friends in Sibyllisville. You got to check out my friend Karen Sapansky, who lives up there. I've got friends all over the place. But but understand this: the way to represent what you're calling communities of political interest is through proportional representation. It's just not fair that Republicans in Massachusetts have no representative in the whole delegation that they can relate to. Just it's not like it's not fair that if you have no Democrats coming from Utah or you know, another state that's similarly lopsided in the other direction. There's a Republican governor in Massachusetts. There's a Democratic mayor in Salt Lake City. We should be able to come up with a system that's much more like democratic systems around the world, where if you win 55% of the vote, you don't get 100% of the seats. You get more like 55% of the seats. So the political minorities get represented too. 
You had uh, Demo- the Democrats' rising star AOC in town, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, just uh, a week or two ago. We reported the speeches. What, what happened behind the scenes? Alexandria is the vice chair of the uh, Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties, which I'm the chair of. So I work closely with her, uh, and we both work under uh, our beloved Elijah Cummings, the great chair of the committee who's really been doing a remarkable job conducting oversight of undoubtedly the most lawless presidential administration of our lifetime. So behind the scenes, I think that we were there to support Democracy Summer, which is the project I have, Doug, for high school and college kids. And AOC spent a lot of time interacting with the young people. And I think that her, I mean, her appeal is strong generally, but it's overwhelming uh, in the new generation. I mean, she really is a hero to young people. And so we tried to maximize the amount of time that she could spend with the Democracy Summer fellows behind the scenes. And of course, everybody needed to do the obligatory selfie. (laughs) (laughs) Last question real quick. I've known you for since you entered the legislature. You have always been prone to oration. Is that you or do you have somebody really good working for you? (laughs) That's very sweet of you to say. No, I've never been able to uh, find or attract a, a speech writer. And one or two people have tried to write me a speech, but it never works because uh, I tend just to talk about the things I'm thinking about and the things I'm working on. You know, I've been a law professor for 29 years. And so I do my own analysis and I do my own writing. I've always figured out what I think about a subject by writing about it. So when I have the time to write a speech, I will write it. And undoubtedly, it's a lot better than when I'm just, you know, speaking extemporaneously. But it's it's kind of you to say I am definitely a student of political rhetoric. And uh, I love the great figures in our history who have been orators, including Dr. King and Abraham Lincoln and William Jennings Bryan. And uh, I've discovered a number of members of the House of Representatives and senators who were great speakers. Uh, Margaret Chase Smith is somebody I've become interested in. You know, she's a Republican senator from Maine, but was a really very effective orator. So uh, the, the people ask me what the biggest perk of my job is, and it's undoubtedly the Library of Congress because they can find me any book, any magazine article, any speech anybody ever gave. And so uh, I'm able to obtain a lot of documents. I even got to see James Madison's famous memorial and remonstrance against religious taxation which was basically outlined the ideas that were the basis of the First Amendment in his own hand. So it was covered in a cellophane protector, but I was able to actually hold it and look at it. So that's pretty amazing. So, I, you know, being up on Capitol Hill gives me the, the chance to interact with a, a lot of the great speeches and documents of our past. All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been uh, Jamie Raskin speaking on Montgomery Talks. I'm Doug Tallman, senior reporter for Montgomery Community Media. And join us next time. Thanks Thanks for having me, Doug. Thanks for being here.